0: Now welcome to this uh, latest Master Investor podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and today I am delighted to be joined by Terry Smith who I'm sure all our listeners will know has been the manager of the Fundsmith Equity Fund since its launch in 2010 and is also the CEO and founder of the management company Fundsmith. But just as important, I think, for the purpose of this particular conversation, Terry, is the fact that you, I'm afraid to say rather like me, have been involved in the market since the 1970s. You joined the city in 1974, I think, as I recall, uh, which was not a great time to be starting in the uh, financial world, except unless you believe that the best time to start is when things are at their very worst, which they were, I think, in uh, 73, 74 so what I wanted to do today was I wanted to talk to you, obviously, we'll come on to talk about Fundsmith and the way the fund has been performing. It has been an exceptional performance uh, since launch with an annualized uh, rate of return of, in the order of about 16%, which is some 5% better than the All World Index and way ahead of most of its peers in the same sector. And I have to disclose that I have been an investor in this uh, fund since launch, as has my wife though I did sell a few at the end of last year. So we'll come on and talk about Fundsmith the Fund in a moment. But I wanted to just start off by talking about uh, you know, where we are in the market cycle. And I'm just wondering whether you would agree with me that what we're going through at the moment appears to be a pretty much a perfect storm in terms of things that are going badly wrong at the moment.
1: I'm not sure it's a perfect storm. Jonathan, because uh, you allude back to the start of my career in 1974. I think that was closer to it, because uh, at least uh, in the UK, maybe not globally, well, first, we had very similar things to that. We had inflation. Uh, My first full year in work was 1975, in fact. I started during 1974. And the CPI rose by just over 24% in 1975, or as we call it technically in the trade, a hell of a lot. So that was was pretty bad compared to what we've got now. Of course, we'd also had the, uh, you know... Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And uh, we had the Yom Kippur War, followed by the Arab oil embargo of countries that were supportive of Israel and a a spike in the oil price. And my question for your readers who are in there, and I love all these sort of quizzes and things, is, what did the oil price go from and to during that Arab oil embargo? What was the price that started at and ended at? You, I mean, you may know the answer, I suspect, but it would be interesting for them to look that up and put it into perspective
0: now. Yes, I'm, it sort of quadrupled, I think, and it got to the giddy heights of 10 or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. it quadrupled and got to
0: 12. <laughs> 12, OK, 12. The, so, the,
1: point, the most important point was the quadrupling. But that was the really yeah. big bit. And we had a secondary banking crisis, of course. So for us, it was a bit like the credit crisis meets inflation meets an oil crisis. So um, I think that was pretty much the perfect storm. And of course, I mean, in 1973, which was the year before, we'd had the power only on for three days a week because of a minor strike. So, and of course, we had political turmoil as well during this period. So we'd had the uh, the barber boom, and, uh, and that was uh, followed by a change of government. So it's quite similar. I think it was more extreme then, uh, but quite similar. Therefore, I would say to you, it's not the perfect storm, but it's pretty lumpy, yeah, <laughs> quite lumpy.
0: <laughs> OK, so my next question then, for that would be, Obviously, you know, and you've said many times, and I know very well, that uh, it's a mug's game to try and predict what's going to happen to markets, and even more a mug's game to try and predict what's going to happen to the economy. That's uh, why you're going to ask me to
1: do exactly that, presumably. <laughs> no, I'm
0: not. No, I've, I've, I've thought of this response. So what I'm going to ask you is whether you think that, given that everything that's happened so far this year, or since November, in fact, last year, I think it's fair to say, that the the market response has been rational in terms of direction. Would you agree that that has been uh, been a rational response by the markets? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I would say so. I think what the market has done is see, stroke, sense two things. We have to bear in mind markets are discounting mechanisms. Um, They look ahead. They look ahead anything from about two minutes to about 200 years, depending upon what mood they're in. Uh, But they definitely look ahead. And I guess the twin things that they've spotted, um, and which are quite linked, obviously, are a rise in interest rates um, and a possible recession, uh, the two things that they've uh, they've spotted. And um, the obvious reaction to both of those is for the market to decline, to be a little bit careful, because bear markets and recessions are not the same thing. Um, you can have bear markets without recessions and recessions without bear markets. But even when one is the cause of the other, they, they're not co uh, markets do look at and therefore, they tend to fall in advance of recessions and recover in advance of recoveries. Um, look, the rise in interest rates, we have to be careful about which interest rates we're describing here. But the rise in medium to long-term rates is injurious to valuation. Any long-term asset that you've got, be it a bond or an equity, is a combination of the future cash flows. And to get them back to present value, as you know, we need a discount rate. And if the market senses that that discount rate, the long bond yield, is going to have to go up, then it starts to bring down the valuation. So, tip, that's perfectly logical. And obviously, in a downturn, uh, the actual thing that you're discounting, the cash flows, fall to a greater or lesser extent. Depends upon what sort of investment we're talking about. But, but clearly, across the market, for the average company, there is an element of cyclicality. One of the things people say to me from time to time is, "Oh, you invest in non-cyclical companies," and I always reply. Well, actually, I've never found one. I've been in work for 48 years, as you pointed out, and I've never found one. It's a matter of degree of cyclicality. Everything has a degree of cyclicality. What we are seeking at Fundsmith is things where even at the bottom of the cycle, the returns and performance are still adequate. That's what we're looking for. Um, But the market senses that even that devalues what we own a bit. And, of course, for the heavily cyclical, it may devalue them a lot or even completely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And across the market as a whole, obviously not across the kind of companies you own, but across the market as a whole, it's also typically the case that in retrospect, when you look back at what happened during a bear market, if that's what we're you know moving into a bad one, that the, the share prices have adjusted more than the economic fundamentals have actually adjusted over time. So they tend to overshoot on both sides.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it's, there are many, many analogies you can use for all this. I, I've always liked the Warren Buffett one of the he owns a farm and the bloke next door owns a farm and the bloke next door is a manic depressive and he comes up every day and shouts a couple of prices at him. One is the price he would be prepared to buy Warren's farm at and the other one is the price he'd be to sell his own farm at. And of course, Warren's belief is that what you do uh, methodology is what you, you wait till the guy to become very depressed and shout the wrong uh, offer price for his farm and you buy it from him. And it's, yeah, it's a bit ridiculous, but it gets you into the feeling, well, does farmland vary <laughs> in value? It might in price, but it doesn't in value, does it? I mean, presumably, there's a yield in terms of a crop from it, and there's the price of the crop varies a bit, but most of the other inputs don't vary, very much. And so, yeah, that's what we're dealing with. The, the, the intrinsic value of companies varies an awful lot less than their share prices do. The share price is just the price of a fractional unit of the company traded between two people, which their reasons for trading may be Absolutely nothing to do with the intrinsic value of the company. It may be their own liquidity position, their own psyche, and how they feel at any one moment. Uh, PayPal, which is a company that we we own and follow. If you looked at the headlines on PayPal two days ago, you would have seen that there was a signal that there was a so-called whale trade out there with a big put option position, which was from their calculation of intrinsic value, uh, strike price and value paid, that whoever had this was betting that the shares would go down 12% on the results. Now, as it happens, in the last 24 hours, Elliot, uh, management the activists, has been declared as having a stake, and they've gone up 12%. Now, my guess is that that 24% difference there potentially in the value of PayPal has nothing to do with the value of PayPal. Nothing whatsoever. They're not doing any more or less transactions with any more or less people to any significant degree within that 48-hour period. That's for sure.
0: You know? Well, when I said that the uh, the market, you know when I asked whether the market reaction had actually been rational, of course I, I was half expecting you to say, well, you know, the words rational and market going together in the short term are not always not always good uh, companions. But uh, I mean, there is another factor here, which is you know there's a lot of debate about what's the real cause of the uh, of the fact that we have got rising in interest rates and rising inflation and oil prices above hundred dollars and uh, and so on, and everybody's saying, well, you know, central banks are behind the curve, they got it all wrong last year. And so did governments. Um, but, of course, there is this extraneous factor of Mr Putin and, and what he's done. He's weaponising the price of energy. Uh, and that suddenly kind of rather complicates the analysis, doesn't it? We can't really tell what the counterfactual would have been if he hadn't done that. So uh, no, no,
1: we can't run a controlled experiment with him not invading Ukraine, can we? That's uh, that's not no, going to no. happen, I'm afraid. Any more than we can run 1973-75 with the Barber boom, secondary banking crisis, but no Yom Kippur war. We can't do it.
0: Yeah. So there is this variable out there, unless you have a better insight than everybody else, which I quite likely you you do, but quite likely you do. But uh, we don't know what the outcome of the Ukraine situation is going to be. We don't know how long that's going to go on, how long the energy market is going to be disrupted and so on. Uh, But my point is, it could be quite a long time.
1: Yeah, it could be. Yeah, John, I think that's entirely possible. We may not be living in circumstances there that are short, but there's a, a phrase which I can't remember exactly how they say it, but... The people who I've talked to who analyze oil and energy, and I think I've had the, the good fortune to deal with a few of them who are extremely good. There's one chap who I employed across three firms, which is quite interesting because usually it means you think he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> they say price begets price. I'm not sure if begets is the word they use. I'd have to look it up for you if you really want to know what they actually say. Um, and what they mean by that is in commodities, the rise in the oil price to over 100 bucks will draw forth in and of itself, two things, a reduction in demand and an increase in supply. And so what I would say it's another way. I have no idea what Mr. Putin's uh, intentions are, how he'll get on in Ukraine or anything else. But I do think that actually what we'll find is that, you know, fracking in America, et cetera, et cetera, the Saudis with their tap and so on, The people, you know, going to fill their car up and looking at astonishment, as I do when when I look at what it says on the petrol pump, <laughs> are, going to, are going to be self-correcting mechanisms. But I think, you know, that doesn't happen in everything in the world because some things are finite and you can't easily produce any more of them. But energy certainly isn't one of those things, I think.
0: So the solution to high prices is, is high, prices high
1: prices, high yeah. prices. high prices are their own solution. They will cause a reduction in demand and an increase in supply. And, um, you know, the next thing you know is we'll be... Bear in mind, it wasn't very long ago when we were looking open-mouthed at the fact that there were negative prices for West Texas Intermediate. Yes.
0: (laughs) Two years ago. I know, quite extraordinary. Two years ago. But, however, when you were asked recently in your you know, shareholder update uh, what your instincts were, having lived through the 1970s uh, and other bear markets, obviously, since then, you said your suspicion was, anyway, that the fall in the market was possibly not yet complete when you, you stick by that, uh, that comment. And what's behind that uh, feeling, if I can put it that way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, th- there are a number of things behind the comment. One of them is, you touched upon it, I think, earlier, that I think central banks... We're behind the curve. I quoted uh, Lord King, uh, Mervyn King, the ex of England governor in my annual, uh, my half a year update, saying that he thought they misstepped into going into the pandemic with further quantitative easing. I think he's right about that. But I think what we may find here is that we have one of those things which fulfills another great saying about this area, which is, some people would say that monetary policy is always either too lax or too tight. It's never right. And and I don't think we now probably need to debate, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, whether it was too lax in the last two years, right? And I think what we may find is that we are sitting here roundabout this time next year or some time period like that. And they've tightened, and in fact, there, we we find out that they didn't need to tighten quite much. And so we've had further valuation effects, possibly, although that's debatable, because it is the long bond rather than the short rates that they play with, which which plays on that. Curiously, their tightening may be quite good for valuation. But what it won't be good for is the economy. I mean, we can say with a fair amount of certainty that they are going to probably tip us over the brink into an economic recession. So there's that, I think, uh, is probably my main feeling, that they will go from two lax to two tight, partly because, as I said in my half year earlier, the interest interest rates are always a blunt instrument. Yeah. But I think they're they're even more blunt when you're not dealing with a demand-led inflation upsurge. We're dealing with a supply side. And therefore, you, know, you can put interest rates up as much as you like. It isn't going to produce any more oil or any more truck drivers or any more burger flippers and baristas. And so... When that all corrects, it will correct because the supply chain is corrected. China doesn't have so many lockdowns. More oil is produced. People feel the need to go back to work. All those of things. And we'll be seeing it with interest rates, and they'll be wrong in the other way, I think. The other reason to say it to you in terms of I think there's more to come is just gut feel, actually. As you saw, I've been doing this for quite a long time now. And you know, if you look at bear markets of the past and try and figure out some rules to help you survive uh, within them, and I'm, I'm talking in general, I'm not talking about companies of a sort that we own or, or our portfolio, I'm just talking in general here. I would have said historically, it's most common for two-thirds of the fall to be in the last third of the, of the downturn, basically. Yeah, yeah. And right. that's... It's when you get the the capitulation phrase that the real damage gets done in price terms. So you're nodding. So I think it sounds like you've seen that one as well.
0: You know, I have seen that one as well, indeed. And uh, so
1: it's my yeah. gut. My gut tells me that we haven't seen that phase yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, it also historically, I think it's fair to say that there hasn't been a cycle when the Federal Reserve has tried to combat inflation by, you know, adopting a tighter policy that hasn't actually ended in a recession. Could be a mild recession. Could be a bad one. We don't know. And they're only human, and they don't don't know either, of course. No, no, I mean, before
1: we blame them, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, (laughs) um, and uh, there are a number of rules like that. Once inflation gets over 5%, it's never been corrected without a recession. And once it gets over 5%, it's never been corrected without the Fed funds rate going above the CPI. Now, those are both movable objects, so we didn't get too excited, but you could get very excited given the CPI is
0: 9%. Given where we're... (laughs) Given where we're starting from, exactly. Yeah,
1: but I suspect that I suspect they'll meet somewhere in the middle. Is my uh, act, if I forced to guess, yeah. I would say that the CPI will start doing that, as the Fed funds rates doing that, and they'll meet in the middle, and then we'll be sitting there saying, "Where did that inflation thing go?" Yeah,
0: exactly. So. But it's useful to have experience. historical experience is also you know can sometimes be a disadvantage because uh, it depends what generation you go back to. The tendency for people like us is to get too gloomy because they've lived through really bad things in the past. And for younger people who've only been in the market for say 20 years, they've never kind of seen anything quite like the 1970s. so they may they may stay optimistic for too long, shall we say. would that be uh, would that be a fair comment?
1: Well, I, t- I certainly think that inexperience is on the whole not a virtue. If you haven't seen something like it before, yeah, you can react quite badly, I think, to it. Obviously, we've got the nineteen seventies for you and I to look back on, and, and there aren't very many people left doing this actively day to day now who could do that. But I mean, the other thing I think, for example, I would look back to is the dot com bust, and you know, the dot com bust basically led to an awful lot of company you know, share prices cratering in in anything TMT related, technology, media, and telecommunications, as it then was, the great buzz uh, three letter acronym. And out of that, there were some companies which created and frankly they should probably never have existed in the first place because they weren't a business they were a business plan <laughs> and, and we never heard any more of those that was all, all your money if you were invested they were swept away with the tide. And there were some which were just great buying opportunities because they really were businesses, and I suspect we're in something like that now. If you if you look at the technology sector, which is obviously a very important part of what we all do now, I suspect that bifurcates into a number of things where, if you look in the PE box on Bloomberg, it says NA. <laughs> <laughs> And my view of that is jolly good luck. And there are a lot of other things where, you know, we're sitting using Microsoft Teams at the moment where I suspect that you may at some point see a great opportunity. Um, And uh, I think uh, having some experience uh, of that kind of thing is quite useful in my view.
0: I mean, I have read sort of estimates that there, there's something like 20% of the listed equity universe in the States are basically zombie companies in the sense they've either haven't got any earnings or they're just surviving by virtue of the fact that interest rates have been so low for so long and they've been able to survive. Um, so if we do, if this thing does persist for a couple of years, we are going to see quite a few corporate casualties, aren't we? I mean, not just the companies that haven't got any earnings, they will be derated and possibly, you know, disappear. But there'll also be uh, existing companies which will probably disappear or have to be rescued or restructured or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we didn't have. I mean, name a large company other than Lehman that went bust in the in the credit crisis. Yeah, uh, I mean, and this a, is not a natural order of affairs, is it? This is not yeah. a natural. A downturn in the economy, a rise in interest rates, and a big, big rise in input costs should lead to some people being accounted out, shouldn't it? People with uh, high gearing, poor business models, low margins, poor cash flows. Uh, We should see some of those disappear, shouldn't we?
0: And that's that's what we call capitalism, yeah. I think that's what
1: it's called, yeah, if I recall. That's uh, what it's meant to do, yeah.
0: We haven't had unfettered capitalism anyway for the last uh, since the global financial crisis. No, I, that's um, for sure. the,
1: I accepted a, a speaking invitation at the Guardian after the financial crisis, or, or even during it. I think maybe, um, which you might say, well, that's interesting for you, Terry. And I, I did. I went, I went up to Kings Cross and uh, and did a uh, sort of debate speaking thing. And um, when it got to my turn to speak, needless to say, I was the misnade baddie uh, in casting terms for this. I fulfilled my role fully for them insofar as um, having her speeches acclaimed, saying that capitalism and markets were at fault. I said, well, it's hard to conclude that, given that we haven't let them have a go yet.
0: <laughs> exactly. We
1: have exactly. Tried it. Yeah. We have yeah. Tried it.
0: But well, one of the things that worries me just about the general environment, okay, and this is in a way sort of stepping off peace, but not entirely, given what's happened over the last, uh, you know, 15 years or so since the global financial crisis. I mean, one of the things is not entirely an accident, as far as I'm concerned, that we have seen uh, more polarized politics, we've seen more populism and so on. We see, and isn't there a lot of danger that if we go into this period when, you know, politicians who are short term minded are dealing with what are some quite intractable problems, that we might actually get, you know, there will be some political risk out there? shall I say, put it no higher than that, quite apart from the international strategic issues of China and Russia and so on. And generally, those things aren't always good for investors.
1: No, I think that's a sort of reasonably good bet, I think, in terms of the development of politics uh, out there. I mean, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things to say about it. And one of the things I think which is misguided, but again, this won't get me anywhere in terms of, uh, of debates with certain uh, people, then I don't want to debate it with them really, is... I think it's wrong to seek equality. People worry about increasing inequality. I think what we should seek, we'll never get it, but what we should seek is equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. I think we should accept that people have different abilities and different application. And therefore, some people will do better than other people. And that's the natural order of things. And we mustn't fight it. What we need to try and engender is equality of opportunity. So the people who are talented and willing who wouldn't get great opportunities get something close to an equal opportunity. Otherwise, we don't have new blood coming in to renew our business and society and politics. So that's, that's where I'm on it. But having said that, that just because I think that doesn't mean anybody else does. Uh, and in fact, the inequality that's been caused by policy to some degree in the last sort of decade or so is unhelpful. Yeah. And a lot of, one of my fears out there for companies is the targeting of them. Because they have done very well. I mean, you know, in many respects, the equity or even the bonds of companies like the Nestle's and the Procter & Gamble's are a much better bet than the bonds of an awful lot of, uh, of sovereigns out there in terms of what you're getting in terms of security. But of course, that is until the sovereigns come and start picking on them, uh, basically. And if we look at our friends, the technology sector, the, the commanding heights of big tech, so-called, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Alphabets or Googles, uh, the Metas or Facebooks, uh, et cetera out there. They are under attack from the regulatory regimes of one sort or another, including the competition ones. And I, having sort of studied the the output of this quite a bit, because it is something we're interested in investment, I think what they're being accused of being, by and large, is
0: successful. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. No, yeah, I'm, can... I'm
1: a big believer in them being successful, and I'd like them to continue being successful, but there is obviously a political thrust in the other direction. I take comfort for one thing, however, as we saw during the Trump presidency, and when, when Trump's presidency was in the offing and lots of people were wringing their hands about it, I said to them, well... I, don't, I can't think of another political system in the world that's got more checks and balances built into it than the American political system. So in many respects, I don't think your fear should be, will Donald Trump do something extreme? I think you a bigger fear might be whether anyone can ever get anything done, actually. <laughs> and so it would appear. <laughs> but then, Indeed. since I'm not particularly a big government man, I'm not too afraid of that. Uh, so it may be that the, the sort of political thrust at corporates in general and at tech in particular... Is blunted by the checks and balances of the system. That if you want to get a bill through saying that people who've got tech companies can't favour their own products or their own platforms and so on and so forth, you've actually got to get it through and not just the president signing it, but both houses of Congress and the Supreme Court, and that may be tricky in any one term. And so you're done.
0: Yeah, yeah. A fair point indeed. Before we but move on, the to...
1: last company to be broken up in the United States by F- size by antitrust action was AT and T,
0: and that was. Some time ago, yeah.
1: And the last one before that was Standard Oil.
0: Yeah, which was about 1910,
1: wasn't it? My final (laughs) part of this story is when Standard Oil, when they announced the breaking up of Standard Oil, John Paul Getty was playing golf with a Catholic priest friend of his. I mean, where did all these things come from? I don't know. And when he heard the noise that Standard Oil was to be broken up, he advised the priest to buy the shares. And he was right.
0: Yeah. Turned out to be a positive, Yeah. Before we move on, though, to, to talk about funds, I do want to do that. I just want to mention one of the You mentioned in your shareholder thing that you've been reading uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff. Uh, this yeah. time is different. Because one of the other aspects where we're going into this particular phase in the markets is that we are living through a period when governments, the uh, issuers of sovereign debt, uh, are more indebted than, well, it's probably not worth recalling the last time they were more indebted than this. And historically, uh, when they get... I suspect? World War II, yeah, exactly. About the only other time, I think. So, But Reinhardt and Rogoff say that when you know when the debt to GDP gets above whatever it is, 80%, 100%, there's trouble coming, guys. Um, and, of course, it's way above that if you account for it properly these days. So dealing with that problem and dealing with the other problems we've got at the moment, when you're in that situation where you're maxed out on the credit card, as governments are, is going to be quite difficult, isn't it? It's obviously not good news for bondholders for a start.
1: No, I mean, look, one of the problems of sailing into a period of inflation, which obviously we are in, uh, and I mentioned in my letter, is what do you do? Uh, and equities, well, it's not been much fun, is it? I mean, you know, we've had six months where we've we've all lost money. Not you, obviously. You've bailed out but, you know, the rest of us. The rest of us poor souls have lost a few bonds. Bonds have been bad, and fairly obviously bonds would be bad, wouldn't they? Cash doesn't exactly look like a great home, either. What to do? And um, yeah, I mean, you're quite right. Bonds is not the place to be in this. I mean, the reality is, if you think you can time it, you go to cash, look with the inflation, and get climb back into the equities if you think you can time it. And if not, I, I guess you just sit in equities of a sort that you're happy to home and try and not look at the TV to <laughs> <laughs> wait for the better days to arrive. Um, and that's about it. But yeah, you know, the sovereign debt thing is interesting. I mean, we've obviously had a, a very severe collapse in Sri Lanka brought on by a combination of factors uh, there. And it would be surprising if we didn't get those elsewhere in the developing world, um, because the Reinhardt and Rogoff numbers um, actually suggest that you can get into difficulty in that part of the world on much lower debt to GDP numbers. You know, 50 or 60 percent, you can quickly tip into it. And so there are plenty of people out there with very poor situations, and I'm not predicting anything with regard to them, but Pakistan, Turkey, you know, there are plenty of problems sitting there, potentially, which are not small economies, but I mean, I think I think the big one, if if you were looking for a doesn't get discussed much, could be a problem event, is the Eurozone. Yep. Um the Eurozone clearly had a sort of um It might be overdramatic, to say near-death experience during the credit crisis, but it definitely had a crisis with Draghi having to say, we'll do whatever it takes. And we're now seeing some secret uh, weapon, some ray gun being devised by the European Central Bank to ensure that when people do the perfectly logical thing and say that Italian bonds in euros are not the same credit risk as German bonds in euros, (laughs) then we're going to do something horrible to them to prevent them taking action on that. Well... That might work, but it might not. <laughs>
0: yeah. That problem hasn't gone away. There, there
1: That's... is a fundamental problem at the root of this particular body, isn't there, that the fiscal characteristics of Germany and Italy, to take two examples out there, are not the same. And the fact that they're in the same currency is not terribly relevant. Well, it's terribly relevant to the eurozone because they want it to be, but it's not really actually any more relevant than saying, if I were to take on debt in US dollars, I expect the Federal Reserve to be at my back. I mean, Really? Or I mean, just to make it less ridiculous, you know, if Barclays Bank has U.S. dollar debt, do we really think the Federal Reserve is going to ride to the rescue? I don't think they are. You know? (laughs) Um, And so there is, I mean, there's clearly a big fundamental problem there.
0: Yeah, there is indeed. It would
1: be rather ironic if the crisis got them this time, but it didn't get them last time, in terms of causing some kind of fracture. Because at Rue, we have a, a series of bonds they would like us to regard as similar credit risk, but without a single issuer.
0: Yeah, exactly so. And, of course, uh, in passing, I might mention that Mr Putin knows this very well, of course, and he's, uh, he's applying pressure not just to well, Italy well, but to Germany. Well, I
1: might accuse Mr Putin of many things. People obviously do, but being stupid wouldn't be one I would personally suggest that uh, uh, would fly. This has been a Master Investor podcast, one of a series hosted by the professional investor and author Jonathan Davis. For more news, insights and interviews with leading market experts, please visit the Master Investor website, masterinvestor.co.uk.